Welcome to Stay Grounded with your host, me, Raj Jana. I'm the founder of Java Press Coffee Company, and my life changed after my mentor died with three months left until retirement. That experience inspired me to start a personal journey to discover how we can all live a purpose-driven and meaningful life starting today. I interview everyone from best-selling authors and business moguls to extreme athletes and monks to discuss happiness, success, and fulfillment to uncover powerful takeaways that empower you to stay grounded and make passionate living a reality. To access post-podcast discussions, insights, and further resources, visit rajjana.com forward slash stay grounded. So thanks for joining me today. Now, let's get to grinding. Yo, yo, what's up everyone? And welcome to this week's very special episode of Stay Grounded with my new friend, Dr. Joanna Laprade. So Dr. Joanna is a Jungian psychotherapist. She's the founder of Aeon Psychotherapy. She's an educator and the brand new author of Forged in Darkness, The Many Paths to Personal Transformation. We got introduced through a mutual friend and when I got a chance to really dive deep into Dr. Joanna's work, it made me realize just the one, no stranger to the show, I'm a big believer in navigating the unconscious mind. I believe that the unconscious mind holds the keys to our freedom. It's not the things that we know, it's the things that we don't know and the things that we don't know, we don't know that all of the power. And so the journey of navigating the unconscious mind is, I think, the journey of a lifetime. And one of the things I loved most about this conversation was how Dr. Joanna empowers people to cultivate that self-awareness and deepen their connection with their inner world using archetypes and leaning on mythology and symbolism and drawing in different stories and characters from myth to actually serve as a roadmap for you to identify your path forward. And archetypes have played a pretty important role in my life. A few years ago, I read a book called King, Warrior, Magician, Lover, and which drew from many different archetypes for, for healthy masculinity. And it served as a, a powerful compass for me to move forward and know where I could get to. And so I was really fascinated in this conversation. This conversation went in so many directions. We talked about the power of pulling from mythology, understanding us through different archetypes, how to identify which myths are true for you, integrating archetype work into your inner journey of awareness, uh, defining what darkness is, the role that death and life can play inside of our collective evolution, and so much more. Her book is fantastic. She is fantastic. And I can't wait for you guys to appreciate and get to know her wisdom inside of this conversation. So Enjoy it. If you haven't already, subscribe to the show on any of the podcast apps that you listen to, whether it's Spotify or iTunes or anywhere. That means every single time I release a new episode, it drops straight into your inbox. You can be notified when I have special episodes that come out. And if there's anything that we said on the show that resonated with you, reach out to us, tag us on social media, leave us a review. That goes a really long way, not just for myself to learn and appreciate what you guys love about these episodes. But it also allows other people to to understand what the show is about and see themselves in your stories. This is a community. We're all in this together. We're all walking each other home. And I hope this conversation gives you more insights and clarity into how the stories of others can actually be a roadmap for your own journey of transformation. So enjoy it. And without further ado, here is 
my new friend, Dr. Joanna Laprade. Enjoy. Yo, yo, what is up, everyone? And welcome to this week's episode of Stay Grounded. I am so excited to have you here. Can I call you Joanna or is it Dr. Laprade? Joanna. I wanted to call you Joanna, but you know, <laughs> like I went out of the book and I was like, shit, it's Dr. Joanna to you, Raj. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm comfortable with the doctor title yet. So. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, in any case, welcome. I'm so excited to have this. Actually, I've been really looking forward to this conversation because I am diving into your book, Forged in Darkness, and I'm no stranger to shadow work and the importance of going into your darkness or in the, the importance of navigating what you can't see or the things you don't want to see. And I'd love to, before we dive into the book, the principles of that, like, can you define darkness? That's a great question. And I think definitely in light of my book, and I think in general, the way that I think about it, I'd kind of put it in two ambiguous-ish categories. One would be the interior space within us that's not easy to access on our own, right? The part of us that doesn't have its own light source, what we're not automatically aware of. Being a psychologist, this is kind of the part of darkness that I would associate with the unconscious, right? The the part of the personality that is not fully known or accessible to us in our kind of conscious sense of I. And that part of us has really scary parts in us, really unfamiliar parts in us. It has, you know, the treasure so hard to attain, which is ultimately who we truly are. So it's a very complex space within us. But I think if we can be hierarchical or maybe geographical in our understanding of the psyche, the direction of the unconscious is downward. And in that it's darker, deeper. And the other category I would put it in is kind of a general way that I kind of I'm trying to image and capture the human experience of suffering, of pain, of the moments in life that make us lose our footing and we find ourselves without our normal orientations of light and suddenly in a place that's unfamiliar and dark and scary. And that gambit for people is so complex and so enormous. And I think darkness is the kind of term I'm trying to give to these underworld experiences, these experiences within ourselves, but also just what life can offer us that it can be really excruciating. Yeah, I love that. Actually, I didn't even and I love that it's broken out both into like the very real or the reality that mm -hmm. life does have highs and lows. Yeah. We are going to lose people we love. Yeah, You know, we are going to experience failure. We are going to experience heartbreak. Like there are elements to life that no matter how successful we get, how healthy we get, like yeah. you can't escape that eventual yeah. darkness. And so, and then what I'm hearing even in this, like, it's almost like when we say darkness, it's not necessarily that they're even dark. It's just that it's almost like our relationship to it is what we get yeah. to examine. Yeah. 100%. 100%. Because it's like, if something is not turned towards, it has a quality of darkness, right? You can't see it. How much in us, how much in our lives, how much in our psychological experience 
are these things that we spend lifetimes and enormous amounts of energy not looking at. Feeling is, if I feel that, it'll overwhelm me. Or if I face that, I won't be myself anymore. Or whatever it is. And we push with so much vigor this kind of current of the other, as you're pointing to, kind of sphere of life away from us. And how often, right, in our own journeys, when you, you've you spent, you know, whatever it is, 15 years running from that grizzly bear, that you finally turn and face it. And it's like, oh, the wanted tea with you all along. You know, that it's not always that something is so horrific, so consuming, so terrible, but more that it is unfamiliar and that we're afraid to look at it. And unfamiliar, I would also just kind of add uncomfortable. Totally, 100%. I used to have this frame that as a child, you know, safety being paramount to everything that we do, like sure. I would make a, a judgment about something unfamiliar being unsafe. And uh, yeah. so there's fear. I fear what's unfamiliar because there's, I don't feel safe in it. And reframing that to uncomfortable has been massively empowering because it's not that talking about death is unsafe. It's just really uncomfortable. Totally. Because we haven't. And I think what's so cool about the way you even phrase the darkness with what we tangibly have in the world with what we navigate inside Mm -hmm. is I do believe that if we don't consciously take the time to navigate and become Mm -hmm. intimate with what's inside, when life presents those yeah. challenges, it's going to be a fast track, like whether you're ready for it or not, you're now faced with like, and I know this for myself, like whether it was in relationships ending, that mm. then sparking like, okay, there's all these unresolved, unfamiliar, unlooked at aspects of myself that now I'm like, okay, what do I do with this? And I have to navigate it. Or I know in others might be like a diagnosis, like a cancer diagnosis, where mm-hmm. now it's like the mirrors turn inward and it's like, how is my relationship to me and what am I not looking at? And so what I'm really fascinated by is, you know, in the book, you really pull from a lot of mythology yeah. and you're pulling in a lot of stories. You know, why is that? And I'm curious to hear just like a, it's actually one of the most fascinating aspects of, of this. Like, why is there such a focus on on learning from these mythic... A myth? And from myth, yeah. Well, you know, I guess I would start that with saying we explore the psyche mythically because we are trying to get at the archetypal basis of psyche. So the kind of analytical way of looking at the unconscious argues that at least in the Jungian tradition, argues that the psyche is kind of constructed by archetypes. So archetype comes from the Greek archi, which means first or first image. And the way that I imagine an archetype is almost if we have a vessel, right? That there's a pre-existent form or structure to certain ways that we think, that we see repeated outside of history, outside of time, outside of geography, right? The same ideas, the same human ideas kind of repeat ourselves, right? Love, mother, war, loss, the underworld, death, right? These things that have the human psyche has always been in relationship with. Those are the vessels, right? Those are the archetypes. But depending on who we are, what culture we're from, what era we're from, all of those kind of uniquenesses about our experience are kind of like the water or the liquid that pours in the vessel. So that you see archetypes take a lot of different forms, just like my relationship and image of mother is different than your relationship and image of mother. But on a basis, right, when we talk about mother, 
we are talking about that kind of nurturing, containing, whole-making, potentially devouring energy of kind of giving life. And my association and images of it will be different, right? And so one of the kind of rich and powerful ways that we see archetypes expressed is in our mythologies, right? That we see all different mythic traditions kind of talk about the same archetypes, right? How many figures are there in Greek mythology? The trickster, the kind of playful energy is Hermes. In Norse mythology, it's Loki. In Native American mythology, it's the coyote or sometimes the spider, right? Mm. That we have different images for these kind of truths. But we are saying in those stories, right, that there is something in the human psyche about kind of a trickster energy that moves and changes us through kind of the randomness in life that we can't predict and sometimes we don't like. And so a mythic approach is kind of tapping into these deep stories that have always guided and given form to the way the human imagination and the human experience expresses. And I think there's something especially in the modern era about myth that has become super enchanting that yeah. we're, we're so anemic for tradition and symbolism and story that you oftentimes I feel like I tell a myth to somebody and it's like water on parched earth where people just know that it's true, right? They know that the story is about something that is timeless, that has been repeated, that is something they too are connected to. And a part of the psyche that we don't really tend as moderns reaches out and is like, oh yeah, that's me, right? I know the drama of life and death. I know that death creates rebirth. I know that the underworld, the shadow is a thing, but I also know that there's hope and divine energy in the world, right? These big mythic themes kind of give really a lot of substance and a lot of journeying for us. And so I think one of the things I'm trying to encourage in my book is this more imaginative and symbolic way of looking at ourselves so that we can kind of tap into these stories that have guided the human imagination, mind and soul for eons, And that's really grounding, I think, for the kind of disconnected, individualized journey that much of us are kind of, whether we want to or not, being forced to be upon. I could listen to you talk for hours. Like, you're so (laughs) good at, and that was brilliant. And I just like, I really appreciated hearing that perspective because I think I didn't connect myth to, like when you said Native American and the animals. Like, you know, I'm a big, at least at one point in my journey, spirit animals were a massive aspect. And I've had experiences, spiritual experiences where I would meet animals and I would see them. Mm. And then I would like go and try and explore what those animals meant. Mm. And like that would guide my journey. It would actually inform either a quality that I was trying to cultivate within myself. But last year, two years ago, I got out of a, a really long, you know, a nine year relationship. And I was going through this massive inner exploration. And at that time, I had met a mentor who was guiding me on a rite of passage. Like he was a spiritual mentor and he really guided me on a rite of passage. And and as I was going through that journey, I was starting to see this evolution from going from like a prince to a king. Mm, Yeah, very mythic story. Very mythic story. And then I realized, I don't know if you've actually heard of the book, King, Warrior, Magician, Lover. I haven't. um, 
So it's a book that's based on Carl Jung's teachings and it, it's all about like the masculine archetype. So like they distilled down the masculine archetypes, so, like the king, the warrior, the magician and the lover. And it's like every boy follows this archetype through culture. And, and so that was guiding a lot for me. And, and I didn't connect it. I don't know why I didn't connect it to what you're speaking. Cause like there was something when I was reading through and I was seeing all the, the different gods. Mm-hmm. Right. So the premise is really to, I mean, how do you go about, I guess, finding the myths that are true to you mm-hmm. in a world where there's so many? Sure. Right. Like, does it come back to heritage? And cause you know, like I'm as an Indian man, like, is there value to me going back to like Indian mythology and the Mahabharata and like going back into my heritage or how would you guide or recommend somebody who wants to actually lean deeper into these mythic elements of, of our psyche to actually navigate like the millions of different stories that exist in the world. And that's the challenge, right? And like my book is Greek in its mythic pantheon because the Western mind has a Greek origin and psychoanalysis has paid attention to Greek mythology, but it is limiting, right? And I think that that the degree, you know, Jung was famous for saying that like, there are as many archetypes as typical situations in life, you know, and we can go into this forever. And I think that you have to find what interests you, right? Where does your bliss pool? Where does your passion pool? Is it in your heritage? Is it in something that you connected to in a dream or had an experience of? I mean, there's so many ways into ourselves. And I think one of the things that I love about the archetypal perspective is we are all ultimately talking about the same things, you know, like maybe potentially a little edgy, but is religion not all talking about kind of the omniscient one that is the ordering energy of wholeness in the world, but we have so many different images of it. Right. And you could spend a lifetime wrestling through all those different images and you can also get to the archetypal basis and start having conversations where you're like, wow, we're actually talking about the same thing. What is your way into that thing? What is my way into that thing? And I did it last week. I did this interview with a friend of mine who's a very talented and like celebrated Ashtanga yoga teacher. And we talked about like the yoga mudras and as related to shadow and the unconscious. And it's the same, you know, as is neurobiology and our study to try to make us comfortable in uncomfortable things. I'm doing that from the psyche. She's doing that from the vessel of the body. You know, neuroscience is looking in through whatever their devices of examination are called. But, you know, we're all talking about the same thing. And I think we live in a very compartmentalized world and looking at things from an archetypal way is a really rich way to breed much more connection than separation. It's so interesting. I grew up Hindu. You know, I used to go to Hindu schools and like learn about Hindu mythology, which mm-hmm. they, you know, the Hindus have a very rich, similar to the Greeks. Like there's just a very, like one God, many faces yeah. for everything. And for a while I, I stopped being religious and mm-hmm. I kind of stepped away from it. And I, cause it was very disconnected to religion. And then mm-hmm. as I started going down my personal healing path and I started learning the go deeper within myself, I found myself coming back from a different path of actually learning to connect with myself first. Yeah. And then when I connected with myself first and I met other people, 
it's mm. almost like we were able to connect yeah. on, even though we come from different paths, like it started with self. And I think this is a, you know, for me, parts therapy has been a really powerful tool that I've used, you know, getting to know my inner child, getting to know different aspects of me. And it's almost mm-hmm. like the more I get to know my own pain, the more I can actually connect regardless of the story, regardless of the archetype, regardless of the tool, I can connect to another person's yeah. journey. You said it beautifully, like it's the energy of the archetype. It's the energy of the journey, mm-hmm. like that hero's journey. It's like a we're all on it in some way, shape or form. In the words of the late Ram Dass, like we're all just walking each other home. We're yeah. just at different parts of home. Like I just yeah. might be over here. You might be over there. Like, I guess like in your own journey, like how did you get so interested in the underworld? And I'm curious what mythic archetypes really resonated with you, mm-hmm. or at least I know it's probably a different parts of the journey, but if there's any yeah. one application of you drawing from mythology to help you break through something in your own life, I'd love to hear it. I think as most creators, right? Like I wrote my book because I needed to wrestle with the questions of my book and my book, I guess I'll try to give a little book speech and then tell you why, but this book is about the underworld journey, right? And our relationship with that experience of darkness. And one of the things I write about is in our culture nowadays, we are taught to underworld in one way. We are, and all of those qualities kind of pool around the Greek hero, Hercules. We are told to be strong, to be willfully victorious. We have to do it quickly. We need to do it fast. We have to look good. We have to use our muscle and use our courage, and we have to be unaffected by what's happened. And there's an enormous pressure in our culture to do that. So to weave in myself in that question, the book comes from 2014. So anyway, I hadn't started school yet. My younger brother had this very serious brain injury. And when he was in the ICU and, you know, we were told he wasn't going to make it and, you know, all of the horrific things that no one ever wants to find themselves in, over and over again, people would say to me, like, he'll survive, he's good. Or be a hero, be strong for him. Or, you know, this, these, he won't die, he's a good person. And, you know, that time was so challenging. But I remember even then, like thinking these questions, like, is goodness a qualification here? Like, of course, my brother's a magnificent creature, this, but he could still die. And like, what does a hero mean? And I think in those spaces, I at first really was the hero that we are all taught to be, the Rambo hero. My sister at the time was getting married. She was really caught up in that. My parents were there, but I was like going to be the one that by sheer willpower made sure that my brother didn't die. Like I talked to the doctors, I slept in the hospital room, I shopped for my parents, I did everything. And there was this point in the journey where I kind of just had this breaking open where I was realizing like, Hey, I can't carry this. And my kind of willful holding of this sword and shield is making me miss everything that's happening here. And it's not going to save him. And we were very lucky in, in my brother being okay and walking out of a situation that I don't think anyone expected him to live through. And he's, you know, thriving now in the world. But what 
became in that journey for me was this question about heroism and why are we treating heroism so limitedly, right? What is the hero archetype? We hear it over and over and over again. Us humans love stories of heroism, but what, what is that, right? And why was it not working for me? And so, you know, I went and got my master's and started my doctorate and started studying all this Jung and all this analytical psychology. And this question just like never went away for me. And so when it was time for me to write my dissertation, I actually had a professor because I was like, I don't have anything to write about. And they were like, print out the title of all your papers and lie them out in front of you and find your thread. And I did that. And it was actually really profound because I was like, oh, I'm always writing about death, rebirth, and the hero. Like, that's it. That's all I care about, apparently, not even fully knowing that myself. And so I started this dissertation with this question of, you know, what is heroism and why do we think about it so singularly? Because I think that was my question, right? I thought about heroism really singularly. I think a lot of us in our culture do. And, you know, the hero as an archetype is an embodiment of the human capacity to know that the old life has been worn thin, right? Mm -hmm. Something is no longer alive. Something is no longer alignment. And the hero is the part in each of us that has the wherewithal and the capacity to leave the kind of nest of the known world, to step out into the great world and undergo the transformative experience that life asks of us to grow. Typically, we have to give something up. We have to encounter something in life or in ourselves that's larger and scarier. And somehow an old part of us gets dies off, right? Gets burned off by that experience and a larger part of us emerges. And so in a simple way, right, the hero's journey or a hero is kind of the human expression of transformation and the capacity to do that. And so a lot of what my book wrestles with is why have we become so singular in this? What are the parts of society and the way we think and what we're pressured into that have made us all Rambos walking around having to fix and cure ourselves? And after I kind of chew on this, I use... I guess there's seven total. So six heroes and three gods and goddesses that make underworld descent journeys that are not Hercules, that in their mythology and what happens to them, they give us really, really different ways of imagining what heroism could look like. In other words, imagining who we could be as we descend into those dark places, what qualities make up a hero's journey that aren't you know, valor and strength and willpower. So that's kind of the effort in the book is to give readers and people the idea that we need more ways to go into darkness because it's going to be here in our life. We don't get a choice. And sometimes we need to be that Hercules figure. And sometimes there are things in life that can't be beaten with a sword. And so how do you engage that incredible archetypal energy of change in your way? Is there an archetype from the, you said seven that you wrote about or 10, seven? So it's Hercules, Odysseus, Aeneas, Theseus, Orpheus, Dionysus, Persephone, and Hermes. So I guess together eight. So five heroes, okay. three gods. Is there one that you believe contradicts or is 
radically disruptive to an idea or way of existing that is like celebrated today. I'm curious to actually hear an example of what might a hero's journey look like that isn't that's celebrated in mythology, but not one that's like conventionally from the rooftops of social yeah, media totally. really and shouted. It's a, it's a wonderful question. And it makes me just want to like talk about all the heroes and gods, you know, to stand out for me. The first one is Orpheus. So Orpheus is the, he is a poet and he is an incredible musician, which is his kind of great gift. And Orpheus marries this beautiful woman named Eurydice. And on their wedding night, Eurydice is wandering in a field, a snake bites her and she dies. And Orpheus is so distraught by this loss that he decides to brave the great underworld and go in and grab her and return her to life. And so Orpheus does so, and he goes into the underworld and where Hercules comes in with his muscle and his sword, Orpheus comes in with his lyre and he starts singing of his great pain. And he expresses, he sings about how he can't survive without Eurydice and how much he loves her. And he cries and he laments and the entire underworld stops to listen to his songs. And he gets to to Persephone and Hades and he tells them of his great lamentation. And he says, take me instead. And all I need is this, bring her back, et cetera, et cetera. And Persephone says, fine. You can bring her back, but the condition is that you can't glance at her. You can't look back until you reach the surface. So Orpheus heads back up to the surface and, of course, cannot trust that his, I think Persephone specifically says, trust that she will follow your song. And, of course, near the surface, he feels so doubtful that Eurydice is there that he looks back. And there she is. And of course, she slips back into the depths and he can't reclaim her. And I think there's a few things in that. I mean, there's a ton. And if you were to read the chapter, I unpack Orpheus. But like specific to your question, the Orphic hero is a vulnerable hero, right? His courage is not from strength, but more the origin of the word courage comes from the Latin core, which means courage. It means heart. And so the Latin core means heart. and. Orpheus cries. He's vulnerable. He's a man that is so in touch with his feeling and his pain and his expression of that pain that that is actually what gets him life, what he's after. You know, I think a lot of us are not taught to be that way. We are a pretty logical of the mind culture. We're pretty disconnected from our feelings in a lot of ways. And I think the Orphic hero is how many of us are encouraged to be like that in life? Like, hey, what you want will come from just feeling it so much. Yeah, this is awesome. Uh, thank you, by the way, for that. Is there anything else on that you want to kind of touch on? Because I, I know that there was... if there's I was going to just- say the only... I mean, I could go into like other figures, but I would say in light of Orpheus, I think another thing that is really important about the Orphic myth is that Orpheus fails at his task. And... After he loses Eurydice, he goes into the forest, he disconnects himself from civilization and life, and he wails and wails and wails and wails and complains and, you know, does all of this stuff and never really gets himself back in life. And Orpheus is the kind of prophet of Orphic religion, which is arguably kind of the beginning of Christianity, where Orpheus spends the rest of his life 
making lists of things that you have to do right to get favor of the gods and live in a good place. And I think we are also, as a culture, not encouraged to see that sometimes when we fail in things, that there can be a hidden expansion that we don't understand at that in those failures that might make us greater than we think we are and greater than we were before. Orpheus becomes what he does. He does what he does. He gifts this great religion, which was the most dominant religion in the Greek ancient world, not because of his victory that he lived happily ever after with Eurydice, but that he failed. And there, we are very allergic to failure in our culture. And I think the Orphic hero, part of it is showing us that heroism change, right? Growth can come from enormous failure and it can be really unexpected. So it almost feels like these are philosophies and principles that that sure. are told through specific stories. So if I were going through, let's say, like a difficult experience in life, right, and I stumbled into this story, how might I actually like, how would, when it pertains to doing the inner work and mm-hmm. bringing it home and, and taking this, like, mm-hmm. how do you, I guess, teach or instruct people to sort of integrate, Mm -hmm. you know, mythology and archetypes with Mm -hmm. doing the inner work and exploring what's present and navigating what might be happening? Like, how do you actually connect the dots? It's a really good question. And I don't have like the most satisfying answer for it, but I'll, but, you know, I I argue that this book is about self-awareness, not self-help. And why I say it's not the most satisfying answer is that I, there is not a step, there is not a clean, you know, one, two, three that will get you into a different place in your suffering, right? It's about noticing these things. And with an archetype, right, we behold its energy. With the unconscious, we let it happen to us. You know, I don't get a say in, you know, my clinical room or in my own work with what is going to happen in someone's unconscious psyche. We yeah. notice, we observe, right? So, I hope this is answering your question, but, you know, say somebody is undergoing something and this reminds me of kind of an Orphic aspect and we talk about it. It gives them a way of imagining what they're feeling in themselves. It gives them images they can connect to. It helps them understand, oh, you know, this is about my vulnerability and my longing. And this is me expressing it creative, like in a creative, engaged way. It's like they get to see what's actually happening in the psyche. And then what do we do with that? That's the ultimate hard question. And, you know, I wish that I, you know, I oftentimes imagine and joke with my clients, like if we had that magic wand, what would it be? And people will come up with really incredible things. And it's like, well, then do that. So it's almost inspiring behavior change in a lot of ways. That's a beautiful way to put it. It's you're noticing what is present in yourself. You're noticing what archetype is active in the field within you. And then you get to kind of have choice and engagement with that, you know? So it's like, yeah, I feel really attracted to the Orphic idea. Like I, I too navigate hardship really creatively. Like every time I feel really hard things, I draw something, I paint, I write. And that creativity is available to me. And it's like, oh, wow, that's really fascinating for your own way of navigating hardship. 
where could you do more of that in your life? Right. It's a doorway. You have to walk through the doorway. And I think our culture has tricked ourselves into thinking there are cute things that we can do that will make us automatically on the other side of the doorway. And there isn't. You have to walk through the doorway. Yeah. I think what I'm really appreciating is this, like there's, because there's so many elements to navigating your internal landscape right? Like there's unresolved emotions, which are unresolved grief in our relationship to feeling and healing that. Then there's the beliefs and the perceptions and all of the conditioning that we may have adopted through years of being alive. And then there's choice. We make a choice to make changes in our lives. We make a choice when we hit those rock bottom moments. Like we have a choice and it's like these myths and these archetypes are almost like guides. Like if you would, like, they're not necessarily like, this is what you do. It's more like, this is the energy. Like, I remember when I read King Warrior Magician Lover, like it was actually, now it's like coming all back. I was almost two years ago. So it's like, it's interesting that I'm actually seeing even how I used mythic archetypes. Like I learned about the archetype of the king, which was the one that I think I needed to step into. Yeah. And I saw like the, even the, the archetype, the stories were all describing what a prince is like. And I could see myself in there. And then mm-hmm. the end result was what the king is. Mm-hmm. Right. But the journey there was not a prescription. Exactly. The, exactly. the journey there, like there were tales and this yeah. is what different cultures have done. These are the rite of passages that are present and go figure it out on your own. But I love that. Right. It's like that how many of us are hobbled in our life because we are so narrow in what we believe we have potential to access in ourselves. You know, that says I'm supposed to do it this way, or we set ourselves up for shame because we compare ourselves and we say, well, that person became the king this way. And this one did it this way. And I'm, I don't want any of that. You know, I think this book and in general, what I believe as far as the psyche goes is about curiosity. It's like, We have to open ourselves to, you know, yes, I'm in a hard place and that sucks and it does, but life has put you here and you probably can't just remove yourself from it. And so what's available to you as a person and available to, you know, what's happening in your experience that's perhaps interesting or perhaps surprising. And I think this book and all of these myths, they are ways of imagining. They give us choice so that you could say, you know, I'm kind of like Dionysus, right? Which is the God of chaos and the primal and loosening and kind of the ravaging wild wind, but also kind of the body and the felt and the screaming, right? We are not a Dionysian culture at all. But are there times in your journey where it's like, if I don't just scream my head off, I'm going to die right now? Yeah. Do it. Dionysus is present. Let that archetype be with you. And maybe another time, a different one be. What I appreciate is the allowance. It's like these archetypes are giving you permission. Yeah. Right. It's permission. Like society yeah. might not allow that anger is okay, but, you know, Dionysus might like in, in the Hindu tradition, you know, Kali is exactly. like the divine expressive feminine and she's not all roses. I mean, she's angry. She's the God of destruction. Like, and there's beauty in that in claiming that fully and what you might 
allow that to mean for yourself. And, and I think that's a really cool way to actually think about the archetypes. They're like these, like, I feel like the game of doing in the world has clear like maps. You want to become successful. You do this, like you Mm -hmm. build these habits. You want to become this, you do this, like, but the game of being and going inward and navigating the inside doesn't really have those same constructs. Like there are maps that you can follow, but at the end of the day, like you're almost piecing together different pieces so that you can do your own. Like there's no one size fits all for healing. There's no one size fits all for experiencing the darkness in life. And we really think we limit ourselves in in our own capacity to access what could make change in us by telling ourselves, yeah, there's one way and it needs to look this way and you better do it quickly. And, you know, I think one of the things that I think very personally I resonate with the archetypal approach is there's different words for it, right? And the Jungians call it archetypes and the different archetypes have figured names and all of this stuff. But it's like everybody, when you are with yourself, right? You can kind of, I don't know what part of you it is. The Jungians will call it the self, but like knows whether you are kind of fully in alignment with who you are or knows if what you're doing makes you feel alive and passionate or knows if you are shut off in some way doesn't have a form. It doesn't have, we could use many names to touch that part of ourselves, but there is that part, right? That feels alive by certain things. And that part of us, those parts of us are incredibly expressed by these mythic frameworks where people are like, oh yeah, I'm totally Persephone, you know, like here I am sucked into the underworld by Hades, learning how to deal with it. And you know, we can feel that. You can feel that as true in yourself. And I don't know why or what the right, even do I really care why that is? But it's like, for me, those things have felt true in my life and they've helped me give myself footing in times where I didn't really know what I should do or could do. Well, I think that's the piece, right? Like, You know, you can't solve a problem with the same consciousness that created it, which is why awareness is the most healing aspect of all. Like you becoming aware of a story that's inspired by myth of this aspect of the human experience is life-changing if you've never experienced it in your own fishbowl, right? If you're just swimming in your own fishbowl, like it's life-changing. And I think that that to me is why whether it's you leaning on archetypes or you doing inner exploration work in community settings with Mm -hmm. others that are also navigating, like Mm -hmm. you learning from the stories of others, you learning from history Mm -hmm. and you looking for the inner journey, not what people did, but the journey to it. What were the questions they were asking? What were the challenges they navigated? Like by being able to pull from that, like, And I am a strong believer that we call in the perfect mirrors at the perfect time in our lives. And Mm -hmm. the stories that might resonate for me three years ago might not like, I remember my spirit animal of choice three years ago was a panther. Mm -hmm. And if I really connected to that right now, like, do I feel like I'm harboring panther vibes? Probably not. I don't know. Like, it's like, I feel like I've evolved because and that that archetype that spirit guide served a purpose 
and it gave me courage. It gave me strength. It gave me something to fall back on when I needed it. And, and I think that's, that's how we can lean into this work. And I think that's what I just love most about you. You're lovely, by the way, like you're so brilliant and I love how articulate you are. And it shows, I mean, that's definitely a function of you knowing this and living it. Sure. And I so appreciate, I can't wait to finish the book. So Forged in Darkness, The Many Paths of Personal Transformation, it's available on Amazon. Is there anything else that people should know about the book besides just go damn, go pick it up and read it? (laughs) Go pick it up and read it. I would say the book, it's a hard topic for people to get into. I know that when we are all in suffering, it's really hard to find that meaning in that and read a book like this that says, hey, you know, there's more happening in this than you might think and be with it, right? All of us want to escape and claw out of the darkness. And I think that's very true. And nobody wants to spend time in that space. And I think one of the things I, you know, I once had a client be like, man, you give a good pep talk for suffering. It was very cute. And, you know, it's like, I don't want to devalue these hard places and say like, hey, just like get some cool myths and you'll be fine. And, but just kind of encouraging us to see, you know, with light, there is dark, there is no Mm. removal of this place. And I think one of the things I talk about in my book is our human relationship with the deep and dark in life goes back to the very beginning, right? One of the very first things we did as a species was bury our dead, ritualize the the afterlife. We've been engaged in that for a really long time. We've never described it as easy. We've never described it as anything but terrifying and sacrifice as much as you can to stay out of that place. But we have always had a really active relationship with it. And the modern separation where we want perfection, control, happiness, we want these day world things is super, super new for the psyche and for the soul. Mm. And I think in some ways, it's this book and this research and these ideas, they're called back to a really old thing. Like none of this is new. I'm not some clever genius that's created this. Like we have been wrestling with these ideas from the beginning and they are here. And when we are suffering and it is so terrible, We have to remember that, right? That this is one of the most human experiences of all, right? Suffering is shared by us all. And so it's really, like I said earlier, you know, it's like, it's about that curiosity. It's about being in those spaces. And I think I just don't want people to think that this this type of work is about getting out of it unscathed. It's about understanding that it'll be there, it'll touch you. And so you better learn in your own ways how to navigate that, which will happen inevitably in life. Yeah. That was so beautifully said. And I I love the remembrance and that really touched me like, you know, sadness, grief, death, suffering is not something that's new to the soul. No, it's It's not. It's the oldest and the forgetting of that is new. Yeah. The forgetting of that is new. And I think sometimes I feel like it's the forgetting of that, which is actually causing us pain. Yes, without a doubt. Which is why I've found that remembering is actually the path. Yeah. We're in any case, we're not actually learning anything new. We're just remembering what we already know, which is why when we listen to music or read stories, like there's a resonance to it because at a 
felt level. We already know these things. Yeah. We just forgot because we've been living in the amnesia yeah. of the mind. And I think and, that's that's kind of the experience of the archetypal, right? Is yeah. like there's a felt resonance. It's like, oh yeah, I know this to be true. Why I know this to be true, I don't really know. But I, I know this story to be speaking to something real. And yeah. that's that ancestral kind of path in the psyche, right? All the people that came before us that said, you know, life is hard. This is one way you can relate to it. And we have a lot of stories for that. And we've disconnected ourselves from those stories. And now the task of individual exploration is ours alone. And it's a burden. And I, again, just really appreciate, I've just been really passionate about making resources available to at least my community and others that can simplify yeah. the path. And I really appreciate you sharing all of your perspectives on the archetypes. I certainly learned a lot and was reminded about how much of a role archetypes have played in my own journey. So, okay, I have one last question for you. We're going to make all of the, the book and any links available in the show notes. But one last question for you. In the midst of everything you're doing, everywhere you've been and everywhere you're going, how do you stay grounded? I want to answer it in like two ways. I think one of them is that I am a Jungian psychologist, so I pay attention to my dreams. And I think my dreams have always been the guiding kind of effort for me. And I think there's a layer where Jungian psychology, which is like a whole nother podcast, gets a little about religion and faith in that sense of devoting yourself. And I think like for me, right, it's so hard to know where am I going? What should I be doing? What should I create? What should I not create? And my dream work is helps orient that. It helps give me a sense of this is what's wanting to live itself out through you. And this is the challenge ahead. And so I think on a personal level, I root myself in that. And I think, or I should say an inner level, but if I'm like really simple and maybe super cliche, it's like my, the, those I love, you know, it's like the practice of, you know, my little doggy who I wish I she's right here. I wish I could show her. She's the cutest. My husband, my family, you know, I think, this sounds a little strange, but one of my kind of inner practices is that I, anytime I'm stressed out in any capacity, I tell myself, Joanna, you're going to die. I know it's like a little weird, but I'm like, you're going to die and it could be today and it could be tomorrow. And I have lost a lot of people in my life. First, I think one of, right, to your question so long ago, why did I write this book? You know, I think that is a part of it is that I've had a lot of grief and a lot of loss and a lot of important people die. And I use that to feel how precious my life is. And when I can be in that space and not let myself be overcome by fear, which happens sometimes for sure. And I can say, you're right. Like, does it matter that you did this wrong or you thought you said this stupid thing to a client or you didn't get this article to write about or whatever it is. And I just think, you know what, I'm alive and that's wonderful. And it might be the last chance I get. And that's very mm. grounding for me, but it is yeah. kind of a little bit of a morbid backdoor into that thought. No way. I totally, uh, one of the most powerfully grounding ideas that I think I've ever encountered is just the remembrance that no matter if I lose my loved ones to a car crash or if they grow old 
and die, one day I will lose them. Yeah. And so like that anchor, it's not a, oh, not a what if. it's not a what if, like, it's like, it doesn't matter in either case, the best case scenario, yeah. they pass in their sleep peacefully after living an incredibly fulfilling life. Like I'm still going to lose them and it's still going to suck and I'm going to miss them. And so fuck the story that I'm having in my head right now about me being mad at them. Like, I just want to go hug and, them. And that's the number <laughs> one. I mean, to be, it's so, it sounds so like here I am wrestling with this like great existential question of life and death, but ultimately it gets used when I'm like pissed off at my husband. Yeah. And, you know, I get it. Totally and I'm get like, it. Oh, you know, and I get stuck in whatever in myself I'm stuck in. And then I think like, really, does this matter? Like this could be the last time you guys are in the kitchen together. And yeah. sometimes I'm like, then it'll be the last. And I hate you anyway, right? I have that human side, but most of the time it anchors me in reality. And it's like, you know what? That's not important to me. And I'm not actually mad at this. I'm mad at something in myself or whatever. We can come back to it later. Or it was just the laundry that you left on the ground again. You know, whatever it is, it's like life can teach you or death can teach you how to live. And because I've lost as many people in my life as I have, I think one of the ways I make meaning out of that in myself is I kind of imagine it as their sacrifice, if we can think about it that way, their loss in life has given me the opportunity to live my life more fully and I don't want to waste that. Hell yeah. Well, Joanna, I've certainly, everyone, I really appreciate you. Thank you for being and thank you for, thank you for having me. just sharing all of your heart with us and I really appreciate that. But everybody, that is a wrap for this week's episode of Stay Grounded. I'm your host, Raj. This is your new friend, Joanna. And from us, stay grounded. We'll chat soon. Thanks for joining us today on this episode of Stay Grounded. I hope you found this interview helpful as you create your own ways to live an extraordinary life. For more resources and support, please visit www.rajjana.com forward slash stay grounded to join the official Stay Grounded Facebook group, a place where aspiring life enthusiasts can connect and ignite passion for life together. My hope is that the positivity, content, resources, and support in this group will resonate with you on a deeper level. That what you hear in our podcast, read in our thoughtful posts, or learn in our courses will empower you to live with intention, uncover true purpose, and challenge the internal dialogues that stop you from being who you really want to be in your life. Again, thanks so much for joining us. Stay grounded.